what you have is so sharks are there and even if they're not so much feeding you know on that meso predator right all the time just their presence will change the meso that that prey items behavior right so instead of that manatee hanging out all the time munching on that seagrass right mm-hmm. it's staying you know in an area where, where they're unaccessible to the shark and so yeah that's a really important part of it right you know and that's a great example of what would happen if there were no sharks right you'd have manatees and these other animals then would their populations would would explode for one and right since their behavior don't they don't have to worry about anything eating them they're just going to hang out all the time and eat that eelgrass so then you can get into you know the additional effects of sort of climate change i mean there's no doubt that you know atmospheric carbon is having an issue right you know and that has to be sequestered that has to, we have to deal with that you know but the aquatic environment you know things like seaweed like eelgrass like they they pull in a lot of, of that co2 Welcome to Animalia, where we cover all things conservation, climate justice, and sustainability. One of the old adages of leadership is that it is better to be loved than feared. You've probably heard this before, be it from a mentoring parental figure, a teacher, or a history lesson. But what about both? Is it possible to be both feared and loved? Well, there may be no better example of this than sharks. According to a poll done by research company Ipsos back in 2017, approximately 51% of Americans are absolutely, utterly terrified of sharks. Yet 73% of those same respondents agree that it's very important we protect sharks and avoid killing them whenever possible. Now, there are always bias in these sorts of polls. In most polls asking folks if we should or should not kill wild species, they almost always say no because that is the presumed right answer. And half that are utterly terrified are likely conditioned by our media to a degree, since almost all popular forms of shark content, be it film or TV or YouTube, are stories of attacks. But as we're going to find out today, sharks really don't bite humans all that often. As for their protection, it's incredibly vital. Today, we're going to help break down why. Our oceans are under attack on all fronts, from rising temperatures to plastic pollution to acidification. In the UN Climate Report that came out August 9th, the most damning of all the data, and there was a lot of damning and terrifying data in there, was found in our oceans, where many of the changes are either at or nearly at the point of irreversibility. Throw in that three quarters of all shark species are threatened. This is a bad mix. As apex predators, sharks play critical roles in their ecosystems. They stabilize prey populations, which keeps vegetation in check and the carbon cycle going. Given that oceans are our most important tool for sequestering carbon, roughly half of all carbon sequestered comes from our oceans. And given the damages derived from greenhouse gases, such as ocean warming and acidification, we're at record levels and poised to get worse it's pretty important we don't also continue to deplete shark populations. The twisted irony is, these ocean changes are causing migratory changes for sharks as well, leading to more conflict with humans, commercial fishing, and other sharks. Yet another one of these sort of vicious cycles that we call out on the climate front. So let's broaden our perspective on sharks. Let's explore why they are so vital and what we can do to preserve them. Today on Animalia, we're joined by Dr. James Solikowski 
a professor at Arizona State University, where he leads a conservation lab focused on sharks, skates, and rays. So what's a shark scientist doing in the desert? Find out after the break. This episode of Animalia is brought to you by Earthly, a clean ingredient dog treat brand known for their dental chews that contain no grain, no gluten, no artificial ingredients or preservatives. Earthly has actually partnered with Dr. James Olakowski, our guest today, on the Dogfish Project, a conservation project focused on studying the spiny dogfish, a commonly fished but lesser known species of shark that is quite common off the Atlantic coast. And if you want to try Earthly's products, well, you can. Get 20% off your first order using the discount code Animalia. That's A-N-I-M-A-L-I-A for 20% off. We'll link to their site in the podcast notes. All right, now let's meet James. Dr. James Lukowski, I'm a professor at Arizona State University. People often ask, what are you doing there in the middle of the desert studying sharks? But, you know, sand sharks, they're around, I'm telling you. You know, Arizona State's great. They're, you know, number one in, in, in research and innovation. And so it's a great place to innovate new things and new ways to study sharks. And I'm an ecophysiologist. So I really want to know where sharks are going and how climate change sort of impacts those movements and where they're using certain areas for certain really important processes in their life. It's worth noting that sharks have been on Earth for over 400 million years. That's earlier than dinosaurs. You'd think with such longevity would come a great deal of respect, but instead, we've done a pretty good job of vilifying them. We are just finishing rolling out our series on wolves, and I, you know, I, at least for the U.S., I think there's no more villainized, you know, creature than wolves, terrestrial creature for sure. And I think the same thing as sharks, and and they're probably even more villainized on a global level than wolves are. They might be the most villainized animal in the world, frankly. Yeah. But you know what? What are the things that like we're missing, the public is missing on sharks and how critical they are. And they seem to play such an important role in balancing an ecosystem as, as we know, any, any apex predator does, but they like, yeah, what, what, how would you kind of describe the importance of sharks to the layman person that only thinks of them as from, you know, shark attack videos they see on TV and the internet? Yeah. I mean, it's a funny thing that sharks are very polarizing. You know, people are, you have a section of population that's fascinated and you've got a section that's absolutely terrified, you know, insanely terrified. And just, it doesn't make sense how terrified they are. And we try to to try to get everybody on the same kind of page in the middle and and how important sharks really are. And it's funny you bring up wolves. We were doing an NPR segment and uh, there's a caller that had came in and said, Hey, you know, white sharks are becoming a lot like wolves in new England. Shouldn't we start calling them like wolves? And, you know, it's that mentality, right, that we have to educate and, and tell them how important sharks really are. And, and they do. They do. What they do is they help to bring stability to an ecosystem, right? You know, they eat the dead, the dying, the weak. So they make those populations stronger, right? They keep our ecosystems clean. That's, that's step number one, right? And if you have an ecosystem that's out of balance, right, let's say there's no sharks and you've got a mesopredator, something like a seal or a larger fish, right? Then that, that can really decimate um, a food web. Uh, it can decimate uh, that ecosystem. Things get really uh, out of whack. And this is why you need those sharks in that system. And look, if we didn't have sharks, 
we wouldn't be enjoying the ocean like we do now. And that's, a, that's an important thing for people to think about. I mean, you talk about dead, dying coral reefs, you know, lack of fish swimming around, no diving, no ecotourism. So it'd be, it'd be horrible. Let's take those coral reefs as an example. We're losing coral reefs at an astonishing rate. We've lost 50% of coral in the world in the last 30 years and are on pace to lose 90 to possibly 100% by the end of the century. They play a vital role as a marine ecosystem in terms of the diversity of life they support. They're critical in our carbon and nitrogen cycles, and they also play an important role in protecting coastlines from storms and erosion. So what does this have to do with sharks? Well, sharks feed on many of the mid-level predator fish, such as snappers, which then feed on tinier fish that eat the algae that build on corals. Too much of this algae can overwhelm young coral. A 2013 study from Scientific Daily found that when you reduce shark populations from commercial fishing, those snappers grow abundant. They then overeat the smaller fish that feed on algae, causing algae to flourish beyond nature's intention and overwhelm coral. Now, there are other factors hurting coral as well, such as acidification. But this just illustrates one example of how important sharks are to our marine ecosystems. What you have is, so sharks are there, and even if they're not so much feeding, you know, on that mesopredator, right, all the time, just their presence will change the meso that that prey items behavior right so instead of that manatee hanging out all the time munching on that seagrass right Mm -hmm. it's staying you know in an area where where they're unaccessible to the shark and so yeah that's a really important part of it right you know and that's a great example of what would happen if there were no sharks right you'd have manatees and these other animals then what their populations would would explode for one and right since their behavior don't they don't have to worry about anything eating them they're just going to hang out all the time and eat that eelgrass. So then you can get into, you know, the additional effects of sort of climate change. I mean, there's no doubt that, you know, atmospheric carbon is having an issue, right? You know, and that has to be sequestered. That has to, we have to deal with that, you know, but the aquatic environment, you know, things like seaweed, like eelgrass, like they, they pull in a lot of, of that CO2. And there's, now there's a, a lot of seaweed farming going on to help with that. And one of the offshoots is AC beats good for you, right? So it even tastes like bacon, which is phenomenal. I've never had it, but, but it, it does pull out a lot of CO2, which is really important. And you, we, we need that. And for a natural predator to help maintain some of those environments, you know. Shark Bay is a world heritage site off the coast of Western Australia. It's a favorite mating ground for tiger sharks. One of my personal favorite shark species and one of the most aggressive of all shark species. They will quite literally eat anything. In a 2012 study led by marine ecologist Michael Haithas, they found the mere presence of tiger sharks will cause sea turtles and dugongs, a relative of manatees, to disperse across both temperate and tropical seagrass beds, rather than concentrating in the temperate ones. This is just as James alluded to. This is vital, as the temperate seagrass beds are much more effective carbon sinks than the tropical ones. But that work on sequestering carbon would all but disappear if the species that eat them were allowed to concentrate and overgraze. Tiger sharks prevent that. Tiger sharks thus are playing a key role in maintaining these valuable carbon sinks. Are there any parts of the world that we have a specific... I mean, sharks are threatened everywhere. I I believe three quarters of all shark and ray species are classified as threatened now. But are there any specific ecosystems that come to mind where... We have enough data post sharks being depleted and we can see lasting changes to that ecosystem 
Yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great question. And I'll tell you why. We can talk first about some of the success stories, right? United States is a great success story. I mean, we have a phenomenal federal government, National Marine Fisheries Service, that has strict management policies in place for our, our, our animals. So there's a lot of species that here on our waters are recovering, which is great. And that's a, a, an amazing thing. But the problem is when you get outside of these jurisdictions, right? And you talk about like what we would consider almost third world countries, that's where we run into some problems, right? You don't have enforcement. You have artisanal fishing. People are, it's a complicated process because you have some people who need things, fish, sharks from the ocean in order to survive, right? So they're, they're fishing for their sustenance. But yet while they're doing it, they're depleting a population or, you know, they'll, they'll be fishing it in a non-productive way, right, for the fins. And so education is a huge part of it, you know, and I think that when you look into that as a whole, it's, it's typically those third world type countries where the majority of the issues and that fin trade and, and the horrible use of, of the animal. Are there certain species of sharks that are a little bit more resilient, recover faster, and those that... Or, or, or don't, frankly, or, yeah. or do, do, I mean, there's, there's a lot of how many, I think there's over 500 species of sharks, right? You know, um, it's amazing. We don't even know. <laughs> we, we, yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're right on. And with the interesting and almost kind of sad, but funny thing here is that, you know, we, we know more about outer space than we do about some of our oceans. You know, most of what we know is mm-hmm. coastal deep sea, deep ocean, that's wide open. And we're always finding a new species. So there's always really cool stuff out there that, that are, that's blowing everybody's minds. But yeah, I mean, that's a great point because there are species that are sustainable and that can be used for, for re- food resources. A great example of one is the spiny dogfish here in the United States. And the example I'll give is that the way the federal government works is that there's a quota of how much can be taken, right? And, and eaten. And spiny dogfish right now, the quota is like, you know, 30 million pounds that can be landed. We land about 16 million. And so there's a lot left on the table that hasn't been, you know, landed and, and utilized. It can fish and chips, pet food, you name it. There's a lot of good, good resources for the animal. That's one example. It's a great example. You have another Mako, for example, which is suffering all sorts of issues. What separates Mako from a dogfish or, or a, a shark like a dogfish has a lot to do with their life history. Dogfish are smaller, right? And they reach sexual maturity a lot faster. So they can reproduce really quickly. And once it starts, it never stops. The kind of running joke is for some, some shark species, they're always pregnant. They don't stop. But from as soon as they reach maturity to the time that they die, they're always reproducing. What's so the incubation are, period for a shark? Or does that vary a lot by species? Varies. Yeah, sharks are, that's one of the things that interest so much about sharks. It, 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 not only does the incubation period vary, but how often they reproduce varies too. So some are annual. They do, they produce all the time every year. Some are biannual. They take a year off, right? In between some we, we think are triannual. They take three, you know, two years off in between that time when they're pregnant. So pregnant every three years. So those are the ones, those biannual and triannual species are the ones that really are susceptible to, to fish pressures and the ones that don't mature until later in life. So some of the larger species, we'll say like mako, white shark and whatnot, they're, they're a lot like us. They don't reach maturity until their teens, sometimes in their twenties. So you can imagine that, you know, if we were catching them before they can reach maturity, 
then you're, it's a double whammy on the population. Not only are they not reproducing and putting more back into the, the population, but we're also taking the largest individuals out. So it's, it's problematic. One of the key challenges with sharks is that they are slower to mature and have longer gestation periods than many other fish. The extreme example of this is the Greenland shark, which can live up to 400 years old. Yeah, a 400-year-old shark. And it doesn't reach maturity, sexual maturity that is, until year 150. That's a lot of time to ward off death to get to reproduction phase. Female great whites, a species you're probably more familiar with, reach maturing age sexually at 12 to 18. And given how much they've been hunted over the years for both fins and for sport, many just never get there. In fact, we kill over 100 million sharks per year. That's over three sharks per second. What's happening is sharks have no way of reproducing fast enough to match the rate at which they're being killed. The team that I work with elephants, we've started having conversations about is, you know, can we draw an economic line between the forestation work that elephants provide and thus the, the carbon sequestering and climate benefits they provide? We know we can start to draw lines around the increasing greenhouse gases, right? <clears throat> and the economic trade-off of that from inclement weather and all these things that climate change is causing and the damages it caused. And you could start to theoretically back into a formula where there's actually a dollar value in every elephant, you know, life, because over the course of 80 years, say a forest elephant will um, play a pretty critical role in, in sequestering carbon. And if we can put it, we can put a dollar value in carbon. We're doing that right in Europe. Yeah. Actually, this is the first time three consecutive months, the European union has had carbon trading at above $50. Uh, metric ton. And, you know, you can put that in and say, well, actually a wild elephant is worth tens of thousands of dollars of economic value. And all of a sudden it becomes more palatable to fund work to save them versus I think historically we fund it because it's the right thing to do. We're sad yeah. we're losing them. Right. So could we map a similar formula for sharks and, and maybe find ways to, you know, get money to care for them and to study them using a methodology like that? I mean, I think that at this stage right now, looking for those types of avenues, these alternative non-traditional ways, I think are really, really important. I'll give a couple of examples. And you think about it for these third world countries that are, are you have, they're going out, they're fishing. They need this food to survive, right? In order to sell it or to feed their family, sell the extra. If we can turn that into ecotourism, right? Then, you know, we can save the, those individuals. We don't have to take them out. They're still making money to feed their families, right? And we can get balance back to that, that, that system. You get balance back to that system, you decrease the carbon footprint. What did that mean to that artisanal fishery, to that community? You know, what did that look like? So we can start, you know, and educate and, and get to these communities like that. And it's just really important. Things that you are doing, you know, getting people who are interested in that, taking them down there, you know, charge tickets so they can fund some of this work is, is really important. The citizen science, mm -hmm. extremely important. And working with companies that are eco-friendly, right? You know, and we work with one, Presidio Pet Earthly, it's a pet food company, right? That are using sustainable resources like dogfish, right, in their food, but are taking some of the proceeds and funding and helping species that need help, 
right? So they work with me to provide, you know, funding for our work to go out and do these types of studies. And I think it's non-traditional, right? To be working with a pet food company to save sharks, you know, yeah, it's, 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 it's completely off the wall, but amazing because everybody has a pet, everybody needs pet food, right? But if we can do it in a sustainable and a conservative way and give back as well to the environment, so important. So I think there's a lot of ways to do that. And we need motivated individuals like yourself, like, you know, Presidio, like other groups to really get into this. One of the long-term routes for conservation I have shared on Animalia several times is my belief that we can and should put an economic value on wild species. We are understanding more and more about the value they bring in maintaining ecosystems, which serve critical roles like producing oxygen and sequestering greenhouse gases. We put economic value on those things. There are other economic benefits as well, from the revenue that comes from the proper fishing of certain species to ecotourism, something sharks can bring in around the world. In the island of Palau in Oceania, there's actually a $2 million fine now for killing sharks. Well, why? That's because they've done their own math and realized healthy wild sharks are worth more to the local economy than selling shark fins or shark meat. We need more of this. I think you touched on something that I think is, is really important. One is this, this, you know, are there areas where sharks are sustainably fished and are people cognizant of the issues, right? And that is ultimately yes. And we need more of that. You know, I use the United States as a, an example. Canada is a great example. You've got a group that works with the tuna fishery, right? Tuna, we, everybody loves tuna, but sharks are a huge bycatch in that fishery. So we're working with multiple different groups in order to reduce bycatch of sharks, okay? And not only that, but to reduce, uh, if we catch them, what can we do to increase their chances of survival, better handling, best handling practices? And those things are working when they're implemented. We need more implementation like that. So understanding where sharks go at certain times of the year to avoid those areas, right? So avoid study movement patterns, study distributions, really, really important. And we'll get the climate change because those distributions change, right? And so we have to constantly be studying these things and these kind of interactions. So unregulated and undocumented fishing is where the huge issues really are. Again, in, company, in, in areas that are not using fishery management policies, right? Who aren't regulating fisheries. Those are the areas, right? And so we need more international sort of footprints, you know, United Nations to get involved in these third world countries to really work together to, to figure these sorts of things out. And again, it takes, you know, unusual alternative ways of working together to find resources to do this. So, so yeah, that, that, that is a, a, a huge impact, but one that is solvable and workable. The world is starting to wake up to the problems of fishing sharks. In China, some of the largest celebrities, well, actually the largest celebrity by height, Yao Ming, has been a vocal opponent of shark fin soup and working to make it culturally taboo. But there is still a larger issue of overfishing across the board that is hurting sharks. So even if they're not being hunted directly, they're getting killed in the process of large-scale industrial fishing of other species. What happens, what do sharks do when their territorial range becomes overfished? Yeah, that's a great, great question. So for, for little sharks, you know, once they're three feet and, and less, typically we're not after so much what they're eating. You know, they like places to hide crevices, corals and, and, and whatnot. They eat, you know, invertebrates and little things. So they're, they're okay. 
it's that those fast moving predatorial sharks, uh, sharks, hammerheads, tiger sharks, these, hammerheads, these goes, bull sharks, bar sharks, bull sharks. Yes. All the ones that, that, you know, resonate with people to a certain degree, they can move, right. They can move, but like most sharks, we term the layman term is cold blooded. We call them poikilothermic ectotherms. Their bodies are, their body temperatures are, are controlled by the environment. Right. So if it's the water's 80 degrees, a shark's 80 degrees. If it's the water's 70, shark's 70. So they can move up to a point, right? But when they get out of their comfort zone, either too hot or too cold, they're constrained, right? They can go there, but they're they don't grow as much, they don't feed as well. So their health is decreased. And when their health is decreased, then their offspring, their health is decreased. So it's a like this, you know, sort of continuing sort of snowball effect. So what they do is they move, they look for new places. And then, like you just said, right, you get interactions, you've got, you know, groups of sharks that aren't normally interacting together. You have competitions now, right, for food resources. Look, sharks are cannibals. If a, if a shark is smaller than another shark, it's going to get eaten, you know, and so you've got that aspect of it as well. So you've got comp- direct competition, you've got indirect competition, you know, they're, they're fighting for food, they're eating each other, and they're moving to areas which they might not normally go closer to shore right? Following new prey items. And, and so then our interactions become a little bit more, you talk about attacks, sharks don't really, you know, it's not that attack mode, right? They're not out to like, they're not crouching the corner, like waiting for you. You know, they're interacting with us because of mistaken identity, wrong place, wrong time, right? We like to be in the water, you know, people like to fish, you know, and oftentimes that's where things kind of go wrong. But, you know, those are all impacts we need to be thinking about. And they're happening a lot sooner and a lot faster than people realize. The cultural kind of disdain for sharks, for me, is really frustrating, right? It's, it's I mean, obviously, you can think of big sort of drivers of that. Jaws, of course, played a huge role in that for kind of modern day society. But I mean, Jaws was also not the start of cultural hatred towards sharks. We shouldn't think of like, oh, we we love sharks and we lived symbiotically with them and swam with them. And then Jaws came out and we all hated them. No, that's not how how it happened. Spielberg already took the cultural disdain for sharks and made a movie out of it. So, and then, but the media does play a role, right? I mean, the media plays a huge role. You yourself, and look, I, I love a lot of things about Shark Week. I love that we have this like cultural event where every summer we we sit around the TV and I think Nat Geo does their own version now too. And Discovery, okay. I think you were on the, the the Discovery one. But I'll admit I've turned it on a lot this July. And nine times out of ten, I was turning on Shark Attack. Yeah. I was watching Shark Attacks. Yeah. And even even shows that would start like, you know, on more of a premise of understanding a shark's behavior would just quickly go to a shark attack. And, and I get it from a television standpoint that gets ratings, right? I mean, people love the sensationalism of yeah. a shark attack and, and discovery and that geo are like both in the business of getting people's attention, but it's, how do you marry that? Like I, I, I every time I turn that on, I would click it, turn it off. Cause I'm so tired of, you know, sharks always being framed as attacking you know, you know, predators. And that's what we're always covering. 
And it's like such a tiny sliver of the science of sharks is our shark attacks. Yet that seems where all the media attention goes towards, even from Discovery and Nat Geo, which are supposed to be beacons of environmental and ecological science. But again, this this year, again, maybe not the, the, the parts you were in. I actually saw some of the clip of you at the Tiger Sharks and it was it was fascinating. But most of the time I turn on a television this summer, it was shark attacks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're right. Nat Geo has a, a series, I think it's called When Sharks Attack, right? <laughs> literally. Yeah. yeah, literally. And they kind of break it down, you know, the the maybe sometimes the science behind it and this these kind of things, you know, why are they doing it and whatnot, which is interesting. But I think, you know. Discovery and Nat Geo, I mean, it's a platform and the real sciencey ones seems to be do that do the, the best. And you talk about the ratings and, and that's what I think we gravitate towards. Both of, both of our episodes were all about the science, you know, you know, developing new technologies, you know, you know, how to study their movements with climate change and people interactions and how do we help and do these kind of things. And I think those are really important and they're good. Right. And I think that, you know, as we move through Shark Week and, and Nat Geo, I think everybody would like to see them continue the path of lots of research, lots of education, right? And kind of use it as a tool to teach people, right? How to get involved and how to help. And that's really important. I mean, it's great in a sense that it gets the, you know, people, hey, this is a shark or whatnot, but then it falls on us as scientists, right? To, to educate people, right? To use as a platform to educate. And I think that's how we use it you know, as a platform to educate that sharks only interact with about a hundred people a year globally. Right. I love this the stat. I throw the stat out all the time to all the talks I do, you know, 300, 3000 people, 3000 people bite other people on New York subways every year. Right. You know, and, and, and the, the, the craziness of all that is that a hundred sharks bite people globally. Right. But that's what we hear about. Yeah. You know, when something like that happens and we need to educate that that's not the case, right? That you have more of a chance of, you know, you know, succumbing to, a, you know, and, you know, some fatality from a cow or, you know, an icicle hitting you in the head or no, blah, 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 blah. Right. Than you do from a shark. Yeah. So education is a really important part of it. And we need good platforms, you know, like Discovery, like Nat Geo to really push that, that message. And I think, you know, there's more diversity this year. There's more, I think, educational components this year, but we still got a long way to go. You know what I mean? Do you think they would ever do a, will we ever see a Shark Week on Discovery with no shark attack videos or reenactments? Yeah, I know. I hear you. Hey, the two that we were in did not have any shark attack reenactments. Yeah, no, I, so, yeah, I you hear know, you. There you go. It's progress. It's progress. Culturally, sharks have been made out to be monsters bloodthirsty, unrelenting killing machines that are constantly on the prowl looking to kill anything in sight. Now, sharks are incredible predators, and yes, if you happen to be in their path and behaving like an injured manatee, which is basically what a swimming human looks like to a shark, one attack could occur. But this is not because sharks are coming after us. It's because we are throwing ourselves into them. Still, sharks get framed as the predators and humans as the victims in almost all of these cases. So how do we change this mindset and evolve our culture? You know, Hawaii, you know, huge spiritual component of sharks to that to, to some of those cultures which is really important and that coexisting is really really part of that you know hey look this is their waters you have to respect that you know and 
you don't go to certain areas that you know there's lots of sharks there. Don't don't listen. Why would any human being go swimming near a seal colony, right? In dawn or dusk when sharks are most prevalent, you know that just doesn't make any sense. You know, and then then that person is bitten and the shark is the is demonized. That's that's absolutely you know we got to get out of that mentality, right? Look, we're in their environment. You know, we're swimming next to what they eat. What do you think is going to happen? You know, and cultures that revere sharks as like spiritual beings or whatnot, they understand that, you know, this is their, this is their waters, right? You know, stay out of the areas, give them space. Those things are, that's important. And that coexistence is, is something that, you know, we hopefully can learn from. We also must work to establish species specific regulations. Some fish, including some of the smaller, more popular sharks, can be fished to a certain degree without cascading depredation. Others cannot because of those slow maturity rates and gestation rates. We have to stop working off of one-size-fits-all rules for a general species like sharks and move faster into forming rules that are species-specific, and in some cases, subgroup-specific within a species. Spot on, man. Absolutely spot on. Like Every shark is its own individual species, and those need to be managed in that way right and so that's where you know the the scientists and the funding working with different cultures working with governments everybody working together to solve these problems is the only way that it's really gonna it's gonna work but you're absolutely right man we have to look at these individuals these species in their own way and and how important they're you got some sharks that are you know proposed to live 400 years yeah you know what i mean so look, I mean, every, every, the interesting thing is like anything we think we know, we don't know, right? We learn yeah. more and like, holy crap, I can't believe this happened because of climate change, you know, any type of, of biological or even ecological data that's 10 to 15 years old needs to be redone, right? We mm-hmm. think about that, you know, constantly learning and changing the way that, that we interact with these animals is, is a priority. Finally, James and I discussed the changing climate and how it's impacting life for sharks particularly ocean warming and ocean acidification. For clarity, for those who are not familiar with acidification, it's basically the reduction in pH levels we are seeing over a long period of time in our oceans due to the intake of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. This is lowering the levels of carbonate in the oceans themselves, which is a key building block for, say, the skeletons of coral or the shells of snails. But it's also leading to the corrosion of shark teeth and shark scales, impacting their ability to hunt and swim. This is happening slowly but steadily. On the immediate front, the combination of warming and acidification is mostly impacting shark migratory patterns and hunting territories, since these changes are moving prey species as well, and sharks then follow. If we continue to warm the oceans and acidify the oceans in the way we're doing, what does that mean for sharks? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Um, this has a complexity, and you bring up two really important parts, acidification right, and, and warming temperatures, which go kind of hand in hand. So most people don't know this, but, you know, about 40% of sharks lay eggs. That's how they reproduce like a chicken. Right. And one of the things that they're finding is that this acidification can, can kind of have an effect on those eggs, right. That are, that are growing and that's a problem. Right. And so if you have that issue that you're dealing with, these eggs aren't strong enough or, you know, introduce new predators, right. That now, can come into this area and eat these eggs, 
most people don't, don't know this, but snails are like some of the most unreal predators of, of like these AKs. They kind of just go, go on top of them and suck them up like a, like a shake. So you've got that, right? But you also think about warming waters. So now you've got this egg sitting in warm waters. You know, and what does that do? It, you know, it cooks the little baby that's in there or they don't develop normally or properly. And so that's, a, that's another major issue. And for the other 60%, they give live birth, right? They need to find an environment that's suitable for the babies. And if that area, we tell a nursery ground because it's got perfect water temperature, lots of food, all this great stuff. If those are changing and moving, right? The shark's going to find it, right? They drop the babies off in the area that's unsuitable. There might not be enough food, right? There might, the timbers might be too warm, okay? And so you've got screwed up growth rates and maybe even fatalities because of it. So let's say a great place for them to give birth is off, you know, a coast of, I don't know, we'll say South Carolina, right? That's urbanized. What do you do then? Now you've got 15 foot sharks coming in to give birth there and you have people swimming around the ocean. How do you, how do you deal with that? So it's a complex kind of process, right? And as food sources, as these fish that they eat are moving to get into more natural environments as well, the sharks are going to move to those places. And so you've got all these changing ecosystems and dynamics that are going to be in constant flux. And it's going to come to a point where a range may shrink and shrink and shrink and shrink and shrink for some species that their populations will just disappear. Are there any specific species of shark that are being impacted more than others today already by those ocean changes? Is this an example? Well, what we see, what we're seeing really, we're not seeing any populations so much being affected in the sense that they're declining because of the climate change. What we're seeing is, is distributions are the big thing that, okay. that are starting to change. And I think, you know, we're going to see some major changes in, in those realms. Sharks, you know, species will be in places that they've never been before. And so if these areas keep changing and changing and changing, what will happen is you'll have areas that won't have certain species anymore because the, the climate is just unsuitable for them. And that right there will wreck an ecosystem. And so you've got some, some sharks that are sort of broadening their range, right? Moving more north, for example, and moving, you know, out of the area that they were in the southern part, you know, or becoming less populated. So it's these complex sort of changes. And, and as they sort of evolve and, and change, you know, and, you know, you'll have some that can tolerate those warmer waters where other ones can't, and they'll start to move up, you know, go to different areas. So it's, it's going to be very interesting to see how these patterns and these movements affect these distributions. I can tell you like in, for example, in new England, you know, you have sandbar sharks that are, you know, we think of sandbar sharks as being off of North Carolina, Florida, you know, those areas, you know, they're off Massachusetts. Hmm. People catch them, you know, and it's only a matter of time before they, uh, they head up in New Hampshire and Maine. So are they, are they moving North to get to colder, colder waters? Is that they're they're moving North because the waters are allowing them to, so everything is everything has a range, right? Mm-hmm. Where they're most optimal for growth, feeding, all these things. And so what's happening is that that range is expanding because the waters are warming right here. It used to be the warmest water. Now it's, you know, 300, 400, 500 miles further North than it was before. So now they can go into those waters without having to worry about it affecting their metabolism, their growth, things like that. So the next time someone tells you how scary and awful sharks are, tell them how important and critical they are to our livelihood. 
From our food to our environment to the air we breathe, sharks are part of that process. What we like to say is that, you know, number one, we're not on the menu. Sharks are not, they are not looking to eat us. We don't, we're not part of their food on their, on their chain. So don't, you don't have anything to really worry about if you're in the ocean, right? Just be, be smart, right? I mean, stay away from areas uh, that have, have a lot of things that they like to eat. So you're not mistaken. And, and two is that, you know, you like going to the beach. Well, the sharks help keep it clean. They keep that ecosystem in balance so that you can enjoy going into that water. So, you know, you don't have any real fear of them, you know, attacking or, or interacting with you. They don't want to attack you for sure. And that we need them to keep that ocean clean. So what can you do to help sharks? Well, for one, don't swim in popular shark waters. You risk endangering yourself, but also every attack creates more negative media for sharks. Number two, avoid any and all forms of eating sharks. Help make this culturally taboo. They are not a replenishable, sustainable food source. Number three, along those same lines, when you're buying cosmetics, ranging from moisturizers to lipstick, look to see if it includes squalene. Squalene is often derived from harvesting shark livers. Now, some companies like L'Oreal are prioritizing plant-based squalene, but do your research and avoid buying cosmetics that are utilizing shark oil. Protect our oceans. From avoiding single-use plastics to buying local goods that don't need ocean transport to avoiding fertilizers in your lawn that run off in our oceans. Most of all, spread the word. Help change the minds of people towards sharks and help them understand the vital role sharks play in protecting this planet. Thank you for supporting Animalia. And as always, thank you for supporting this great big planet we all call home.